You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. of a series that we're calling Serve the City. It's a three-week series where we look into how God has called us to serve, especially serving what the Bible refers to as the least of these, as those who are in need, as those who are suffering uh, in one of a variety of ways. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to start it at verse 25. Uh, this weekend, we're going to have our Serve the City weekend. Anybody excited about it? <laughs> Amen. Praise the Lord for all seven of y'all who are excited. Hopefully, after this sermon, all of you will be excited about Serve the City weekend uh, as Jesus has a lot to say to us. If you're unfamiliar with Serve the City, we partner with six different organizations and ministries in our city that are serving some of the more vulnerable uh, and marginalized, marginalized people in our society. We try to partner, we actually partner with them all throughout the year, but for one weekend out of the year, we want to come together uh, as us, our Two Nights Church, with our, our downtown church and our Lexington Church, to come together one weekend to serve our city as much as we possibly can, united as, as, a, as the people of God, with the hopes that this will spur us on into serving with our Serve the City partners throughout the year, and you'll be hearing more and more about those opportunities to do that as the year goes on. We, we, we hope to offer and explain to you and communicate to you and inform you about the different uh, opportunities that you have to serve with our Serve the City partners. At least one per month, you should be hearing from us. And so we hope this, this time, this weekend, will just spur us on to consistently partner with our Serve the City partners. Today, we're going to look at one of the more famous parables of Jesus, the parable, as you just heard, of the Good Samaritan is actually a very popular, not just popular parable, but it's, it's, it's known even amongst people who aren't believers. Like someone, someone who goes out of their way to help someone who is in need is, can commonly be referred to as a Good Samaritan because of how, how important, how monumental this, par, this parable has been uh, from Jesus and how it has shaped the church and really how it should shape all of us as well. I want to get it started in verse 25, give you a little bit of context. Jesus is teaching a group of people, primarily Jewish people. He starts it, or this, this little interaction he has with one of the lawyers of the day starts at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus is teaching, and it seems like this guy interrupts Jesus. Right? He stands up and he decides he's going to try to put Jesus to the test. This was common at this time. A lot of the leaders there, a lot of people who had a lot of popularity, who had a lot of notoriety, they didn't like all the, the followers that, that were moving towards Jesus. So they would try to trip, trick him. They would try to trap him, kind of trip him up in his words a bit. So this lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. He says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, as he often does, he responds to this question with a question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, so this is Jesus talking back to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. The guy actually gets it perfect. Jesus says, okay, well, what do, you see? what do you see in the Old Testament? What do you see written down by the prophets? What do, you, what do you see in the Bible? And he says, love God with absolutely everything that I have, with, with all my passion, with all my heart, with, with my physical strength, with my mind. Think on who God is. Love him with every bit 
of my existence and then love people the way that I love myself. And Jesus lets them know that you, you, you have answered correctly. You, you understand what the Bible is actually all you're about. And he also says, love my neighbor as myself or love your neighbor as yourself. So to live this out would be to be as concerned about the affairs and interests of your neighbor as much as you are com- concerned with your own affairs and interests. This is to care about the pains of your neighbor as much as you care about your own pains, to care about the comfort of your neighbor as much as you care about your own comfort, right? To, make, to, to care as much about your neighbor's needs being met as much as you care about your own needs being met. To move as quickly to meet the needs of your neighbor as you move to meet your own needs. She says, you got it right. This is exactly what the law is all about. He's saying, don't, don't, don't get overly tripped up or don't, don't miss the, the forest for the trees when you look at the law. It's about loving God and it's about loving people. Right? There, there, there are times we can be so far uh, looking at the individual trees that we miss the forest, the big picture of what the Bible teaches Now, this guy goes on and continues to question Jesus. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he just said, love your neighbor as yourself. Then he asked him, trying to justify himself. He said, well, who is my neighbor? Now, this sounds like an appropriate question. Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to be loving in this way? But Luke gives us eyes into this man's heart. And he says that this man was trying to justify himself. When he asks, who is my neighbor? He's trying to prove to himself or prove to others that he's right. That's what it means to try to justify yourself, to prove to yourself or maybe prove to someone else that you're in the right, that you're actually doing a good job, that you're actually doing the right thing. That's what this lawyer is trying to do. In essence, Jesus, who do I need to make sure that I love on my checklist so I can consider myself a good Christian? Who can I reach out to? Who do I need to love so that I can feel better about myself or maybe so others can see that I'm actually doing the right thing? This isn't love at all. I hope you understand that you can can be right in your mind but completely off in your heart. That you can know the right thing to do and actually do the thing that is right but have wrong intentions and bad intentions and actually be serving yourself instead of serving others. When he's trying to figure out who he should love, so, they, oh, no, no, so he can try to figure out who is his neighbor so that he can know who, who he can love as he loves himself. He's not actually trying to love God and love people. He actually loves himself and he's trying to use people so that he can feel better about himself. This isn't love at all. His intentions were completely off. This is a self-serving service. That through the service of others, through doing good deeds towards others, now I can feel better about me. I can feel like I'm being a good Christian now. Right? I, can, I can feel like I'm finally doing the right thing. Some of us may be tempted in this direction this weekend. As we have served the city weekend, I'll, I'll be honest with you, there will be some opportunities to serve orphans who are in a city. Phenomenal opportunities. There will be opportunities to serve uh, inner city children uh, through, through some of the after school programs and through Ezekiel Farms as well. I wonder if any of us are asking, well, how much of service city do I need to do to feel like I'm a good Christian? To actually be a good Christian, how much do I actually need to do to be a good Christian? I tell you what, a lot of Christians these days doing a lot of inner city ministry to feel good about themselves. A lot of Christians these days doing that. So Jesus tells the guy, you're right by saying love God, love people. Notice what the guy doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, teach me how to love God more. Hey, Jesus, teach me how to love my neighbor. That's what he should have asked. 
He, but he's trying to justify himself and say, well, who exactly? Tell me exactly who I need to be going to. Instead of asking, well, how do I grow? He should have been, been able to realize, well, I don't love God with everything that I have. I don't love people the way that I love myself. Jesus, help me to do that. Show me how. Teach me that I might love in this type of way. That's not what he asked because he was self-seeking in his service. Good news is Jesus is going to respond to the question that this man should have asked and not just the question that he asked. And he responds with this parable that answers the question of how we should love. What does it actually look like to love in this way? It's absolutely beautiful. The parable is genius, the way Jesus goes about it. And it's going to reveal to this lawmaker, to this teacher of the law, and to us how much we desperately need a Savior if we're going to love the way that he calls us to. Parable of the Good Samaritan, let's start at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, Jesus is talking to primarily a Jewish audience. This man is leaving from Jerusalem, which is not only uh, the, the, the capital of Israel, but actually the most important city in Israel's history. So this man is likely a Jew, potentially leaving the temple to go about his business. This, that'll be important when it comes up later. And it says... He was stripped, he was beaten, he was robbed. The people departed, leaving him half dead. That, that, that would have been common on that path from, Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho at that time. But to, to many people, it was known as the bloody way. There was, it, was, it was very dark, especially at night. It was a very steep decline. Jerusalem sits about 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho was only 17 miles away, but it was about 1,000 feet below sea level. Very steep decline, a lot of places where, where robbers could hide, uh, kind of in the hills and in the mountains when you're walking through the valley in that area. It was known as the bloody way. This man falls victim of a horrible crime, beaten nearly to the point of death. His possessions and most likely his clothes as well are taken from him. He's left there to die. Verse 31. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Priests and the Levites, these were people who were employed for the good of humanity in general. They were, they were public servants, common-day public servants at the time. In the store, we oftentimes look down on them, Right? You're supposed to be the men of God. Why aren't you helping these people? And to some degree, that, that, that's appropriate. But I want us to consider the decision that they had to make at that time, lest we look down on them and think we are better than they are. They oftentimes had to participate in these ceremonial activities where they weren't allowed to touch a dead body before participating in the activities that, that, that they held in the temple. So these men likely would have been going towards Jerusalem at that time and seeing him, so they wouldn't have been able to perform their job as they were, were called to do it or told to do it, if this man were actually dead. So maybe they thought that this man was dead. Maybe they thought if we stop to help this guy who obviously got jumped, who obviously has been robbed, then maybe the same thing would happen to us. I think we oftentimes look down on the priest and the Levite, and we see by the question at the end of the parable, Jesus asked who was actually a neighbor to him. So Jesus is pointing out that maybe they should have stopped and they didn't. But at the same time, we have to ask ourselves if we would have stopped. 
we have to ask ourselves, well, we have done the same thing. With, with the fear of the bloody way that we walk along, if we're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, would it have caused us to continue going? Now, again, I said that they were public servants. Levites specifically were to distribute alms to the poor. They were to help those who were suffering, but, but yet they, they, they let the, 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 the schedule, they let the, the responsibilities, they let the things that are written on the job description cause them to not do the very thing that they were called to lead out in, which is love your neighbor as yourself. To some degree, maybe it was their schedule, maybe it was their, their responsibilities that they were rooted in loving people, but they allowed those things to, to cause them to not love the one who was sitting right in front of them dying, and they passed by. On the other side, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. One of the things I've said before, compassion is the act of hurting with someone else that is hurting. It is an aspect of love that, that connects us with one another it's to the point where, where when you see someone hurting, when you hear about someone else hurting, it causes you to hurt yourself. You, you, you feel the pain to some degree that they feel. That's what compassion is at its essence. It's a, it's a soul loving someone that that love binds you with them in such a way that when they're in pain, it hurts you. Their hurts hurt you. Their pains pain you. You probably feel this with the people you're closest to in life. If something is hurting them, if they are hurting and going through something bad, it hurts you. Their, their grief grieves you. Jesus said the Samaritan, when he saw him, he had compassion. We see this play out in the way the Samaritan responds to this man who has been beaten up on the road. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Apparently healthcare wasn't very advanced back then. He just poured some oil and wine on the guy. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Pause for a second. Goes to the man, pours out what he has, oil and wine, on the man to, to help him. Bound up his wounds, so puts bandages. This man is probably getting this man's blood on himself at this point. Right? He's tending to this guy on the side of the road in this dangerous place. Bounds his wounds set him on his animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him there. Puts him, picks this man up most likely. If he's half dead, he probably can't get himself on. Lifts this bloody man up that's half dead onto his animal and takes him to this inn and takes care of him there while he's at the inn. Verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. So most likely takes care of this man through the night saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I get back. Samaritans and Jews were enemies at this time. They didn't like each other. There are many who have said that the Samaritan would have been trained to step on the Jew instead of helping him. There was a hatred that was there between Jews and Samaritans, but he picks this man up. He has compassion on him. At great cost to himself, tells the innkeeper, whatever you spend over these two denarii, just let me know. I'll pay for it when I, when I get back. Compassion. It's to hurt when others 
are hurting. This, it, it is the, the, when, when action, move, when compassion, excuse me, moves us into action, it causes us to, to not just hurt when someone else is hurting, but, to, but to, to be so hurt by it that it causes us to act to try to relieve the hurting. It is to love someone so much and be so hurt by their pain that it's actually a relief to you to help them because you are hurting with them. This is what love does. This is what compassion does. Jesus concludes this story by giving a simple instruction. Let's pick up 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So Jesus ends this with a question, and then he goes with an instruction. He said, the one who showed him mercy, that word mercy is a synonym with compassion. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Concludes the story, you go and do likewise. He doesn't just tell the story and leave it open-ended. Right? He doesn't just tell the story and be like, so whatever lesson you get from this story, then you, know, you, you apply that to your life. He said, no, no, you go and do likewise. You want to know what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself? This is what it looks like. You go and do that. You practice this. The context of this passage is Jesus showing the type of, necess- a type of love necessary to have eternal life. Do you see the type of compassion that God requires of his people. This is mind-blowing compassion. This is risky compassion. It's one thing to be moved by someone when they're hurt. It's one thing to feel it. It's another thing to be willing to inconvenience yourself to a small degree for someone because they are hurting. It's one thing to have to sacrifice your time, your money, your energy to help someone who is suffering. But it's a whole different thing when when you are so hurt by someone else that you are willing to to risk feelings of safety and feelings of security for someone else. When you're willing to suffer the same hurt that they have because of your love for them and the pain that you feel by their pain. This is the kind of compassion and love that values the needs of others more than you value your own needs at times that values the needs of others more than your own feelings of security and safety at times. We don't want to show compassion when it causes us to sacrifice our routines and our schedules and our to-do list. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself and be willing to sacrifice your state of well-being to some degree that others might possess the same level of well-being that you have. And this is just what Jesus does for us. He so loves us, he so hates the pain and the corruption that sin has caused to us that he, that he comes in. Not only does he just feel our pain from a distance, but he comes and puts it on himself. This is the most beautiful display of compassion. If compassion is truly to hurt with those who are hurting, then when Jesus comes and literally takes our sin upon himself, our guilt upon himself, and suffers under that so that we can go on and be with him forever and never suffer under it again. He is our model for compassion. I hope as I've been explaining the weightiness of compassion, you've, you've come to understand this is a difficult thing. This is not something that is easy for us. And then we see the love of our Savior that he has for me, that he has for you, that he has for all of his people, that he will come and sacrifice to take the judgment of God that any who are believers will now never experience because of him. He practiced this risky compassion, this loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus doesn't just tell a nice story and then leave it open-ended. Again, he tells us to go and do likewise. 
There's three uh, demands of compassion that I want to point out from uh, this parable. I hit them real quickly. So if you'd like to take notes, this is your part right here. Three demands of compassion. I say demands because this, this is what compassion demands of us. This is what compassion must have in order for true compassion to be existing. Number one, be willing to sacrifice your comfort. Be willing to sacrifice your comfort. Being moved by compassion usually isn't comfortable. It is the act of stepping into the pain of others. It is a willingness to let someone else's hurt hurt you. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to have a, a conversation in an ongoing way with someone who's grieving. You felt that before? You feel the weight of it in that moment, just your presence being there with them for the sake of comforting them and being there with them. You feel that weight. It's not comfortable to show compassion. It's being willing to, to, to step into someone else's hurt because of your love for them. But if we're going to go and do likewise, we need to be willing to sacrifice our comfort. Number one is be willing to sacrifice your comfort. Second com- demand of compassion is to be flexible with your schedule. I know I got some planners in here. I know I got some planners in here. Somebody try to mess with your schedule, they're going to feel the wrath of God from you. They're going to feel it. They're going to sense it. Y'all saw it in the story. I don't think this, this Samaritan had on his agenda today. I'm going to stop on the bloody way, pick, bandage this man up, put him on my animal, take him to the end where I'm now going to have to spend the night and then get to where I'm getting to a day later. I don't think that was on the calendar. I don't think that was on the agenda. I don't think that was on the to-do list for him. Most likely, if you're in this area, you're not trying to hang out for a period of time. You're moving through quickly because you know what this area is like. Compassion demands a flexibility with our schedule. It demands that, that our to-do list and our, and our planning doesn't outweigh our love. That our planning is not more important to us than people. That our tasks do not own us. That we're not controlled by them, but that we are controlled and led by our God, our compassionate Savior. If we're going to go and do likewise, we need to be flexible with our schedule and allow the needs of others at times to change our plans. We can't care more about our schedules and plans than we care about people. First one was be willing to sacrifice your comfort. Second is be flexible with your schedule. The third demand of compassion that I see here is show compassion to all people. That we don't discriminate with our compassion. We need to be willing to show compassion to all who are hurting. This might look different for us at different stages in our lives. For some of you, if you know your roommate is going through a difficult time, maybe it's a simple kind act like doing the dishes for them. Maybe it's helping a coworker out when you know that they are going through a difficult time in life. Maybe it's checking in on a brother or sister. Maybe it's helping someone move from one place of residence to another. Because I don't know if you ever moved before, but that is suffering. That is suffering to the highest order. This might be, depending on your stage of life, changing a baby's diaper. They can't do it on their own. Compassion takes on different forms where we are moved to help those who are in need or just having a difficult time or suffering in some way. But that's not the main point of this passage, is it? This is showing compassion to people you don't like. This is not just family, loved ones, and friends, and roommates, and co-workers. This is to people that you don't like. This is the Samaritan who stops for the Jew. 
This is showing compassion to the enemy, to the one who's hurt you in some way, to the one that's hurt a family member or someone that you love in some way, to the one that you just don't like when they walk in the room. Let's be honest. You just feel it right here in this area when they walk in the room. This is compassion to those that you don't like. We can't just pick and choose who we're going to show compassion to. Who we can't just pick and choose who we are willing to uh, cause our, our schedules to be flexible for. We can't just pick and choose who we're willing to sacrifice our comfort for if we're going to truly live out the type of compassion that God calls us to. I wonder who might be in your life that you would be more hesitant to show compassion to. That you just be a little bit slower. That you might have to just pray a little more about whether or not God wants you to show compassion to this person so we can make it spiritual, right? I wonder who that might be. Jesus is instructing us. He's instructing his teacher of the law, but he's instructing us even today if we're going to go and do likewise, that, that we don't discriminate with our love and our compassion, but we love those whom God has put in front of us. Jesus, through this story, is destroying a lot of excuses we make for not caring for others. It's destroying many, many of our excuses. For members here at Midtown Two Notch, he's destroying some of the excuses you've made for not signing up for Serve the City. Already in this parable, he's destroying many of our excuses. He's, he's revealing how weak our excuses oftentimes are. This man stops on the bloody way for this dying enemy of his. And many times for many of us, we don't serve because, oh, I never got around to it. He's showing the, how weak many of our excuses often are. In 165 A.D., so this was, uh, you know, 160 or so years after Jesus' time on the earth, during the reign of, I believe, an emperor, Marcus Aurelius, there was a devastating epidemic and this disease that swept through the area, swept through the Roman Empire. The mortality rate was so high uh, in the cities that they, they spoke of caravans and carts and wagons hauling the dead off in cities. During that 15-year epidemic, from a quarter to a third of the empire's population died at that time. Devastating death rates. Almost a century later, another terrible epidemic came through, one known as the Plague of Cyprian, who was the bishop at that time. This was from 251 to 266. They were saying about 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. So this was the second one. Many people are fleeing for their lives. Many people had known of the plague that came earlier. So many people are fleeing. The scientists at this time, they didn't really know what to do. They didn't, really, they didn't have any, any quarantine measures or anything like that. So everybody was just evacuating about as fast as they possibly could. The pagans, those who worship false gods, they didn't know if their gods really, really cared or not. They didn't have their gods. didn't motivate them at all to go and love those who were hurting. So they continued to, to run away. Again, the scientists, they didn't know what to do about it. But with everyone running away from this second plague in the last 100 years, that wasn't so with the Christians there. Cyprian, who was the bishop of the church, he saw this as an opportunity for the church to reveal the hope that they had in Christ. He had so much hope that many accused him of thinking that this was a, a festival because of how hopeful he was. The Christians, they weren't controlled by fear. They were controlled by their faith and their compassion towards others. Everyone else was moving away from the plague. Christians were actually moving towards the sick and the dying at this time. They supplied food for 1,500 poor on a daily basis. 
They risked their lives for one another by simple deeds like washing the sick, offering water and food, and consoling those and burying those who have died. Julian, one of the leaders at this time who wasn't a Christian, he was so blown away by it that he tried to recreate it with some type of a, a welfare system, but it, didn't, it never stood. It didn't last because it wasn't truly motivated by love, but by duty. In this epidemic crisis, their faith led them to an epidemic of love. At the risk of their own lives, they saved immense, an immense number of of lives. They didn't really know even a whole lot about nursing at the time. They just were present and they were there and they cared and they would bandage up the wounded. Here's my favorite part. Christians not only found the strength to risk death, but through their care for one another, at, at, at probably at least the 10 year mark on of this plague, many of the Christians who were serving others were Christians who had gotten the plague, but their bodies were able to fight it off. So they actually became immune to the plague that everyone else was dying from. One scholar described the Christians as a whole force of miracle workers to heal the dying. That through their compassion, that they were actually able to bring healing that no one else was able to bring because they allowed themselves to experience the disease, take the hurt of others onto themselves, and then walk among the dying unscathed. Everyone was running from the plague. The people of the Roman Empire were forced to admire their works, they say you could hear it in the streets. Look how they love one another. Everyone was valuing their own lives and safety. Everyone was trying to keep the suffering of others off of themselves. Everyone was running to save their lives, not the Christians. They were valuing the lives and safeties of others above their own livelihood and safety. They were willing to take the suffering of others onto themselves. They were running to save the lives of others, displaying a death-defying compassion this is a love, a compassion that's so strong that it's not conquered by fear. It's not conquered by hopelessness. It is a death-defying love. One of the more notable acts over the next couple centuries after that, as Christianity began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, is during the, the era of, Christ, of that spread of Christianity in Rome, that there became, there became hospitals in every cathedral town in the empire of Rome, which, was, which is a dramatic difference from the way it was before, before the spread of Christianity. Christians were those that, that, that brought this desire to be with and heal those who are hurting to an entire empire because of compassion, because they so cared about the hurting of others. Because not just individually, but collectively, they moved towards those who were hurting. They moved towards those who were in pain. I have a question for us that I think is the key to unlocking this whole parable of the Good Samaritan. I remember one time I was reading, I was asking myself, why did Jesus make the person who comes in and helps the half-dead man in the road a Samaritan? He was talking to Jews. In my mind, you make that guy, you make the hero of the story a Jew, so somebody that the people, that your audience can identify with, so you can tell them, go and do likewise, go and do the same thing that this Jew did, and go love your neighbor, the Samaritan, who's your enemy. That would have made sense to me, but that's not what he did. He intentionally made the one that they would identify with as the half-dead man in the ditch. And he intentionally made the hero of the story their enemy. 
He wanted them to identify with the one who was in need, who was dying, who was suffering, who was helpless on their own and made the one who came and saved them their enemy. He makes them the helpless person, the broken, the helpless one in need of rescue, in need of someone who is more able than them to rescue them from this attack that they have suffered. I believe the point that Jesus wanted to make to them is a spiritual one. That if you're actually going to understand the type of compassion that Jesus wants us to understand, you have to first understand that you were in need of compassion. You have to first understand that the only reason that you're well is because of the compassion of God. Romans chapter 5 says that we were enemies of God, and when we were his enemies is when he died for us. We have to identify with those who are suffering and know that in our suffering, when we had no hope of eternal life on our own, God himself came to this broken world. He was in heaven where where there was no form of physical suffering in this way. He came down to earth, allowed himself to suffer, carried us to where we needed to be, paid the price that was necessary, and said, I'm coming back to finish the job. And I'm coming back to make everything right with you. He's saying, if you're going to actually love like I love, if if we're going to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we're going to love others as ourselves, we need to remember that we needed compassion. And when we needed it the most, God came through for us. That is the anthem for Christians. That is our reality. That is who we are. Those who were dead in our sins but have been made alive in Christ. That is our story from one generation of Christians to the next. That is our story throughout. And so we move as those who are moved by compassion, knowing that we were saved in our suffering. We see the suffering of others and we move to them. We don't move away. We don't run away. We move to them. If you want to grow in godly compassion, let's not ask the type of questions that this lawmaker asked or this teacher of the law asked. Let's not just ask, well, who do I need to really love so that I can feel good about myself, so that I can be a good Christian? Let's ask the question that should have been asked. God, how can I grow? What does this love look like? How can I grow in this love? And then let us look to Christ. What you need more than anything is not simply to try harder to love people. I want to be real clear about what I'm saying. What you need primarily is not more effort to try to love people. You need to look to Christ. You need to see him in his love, his compassion, his willingness to die for his enemies. You need to look at him in the morning. You need to look at him during the day. You need to look at him before you go to bed. You need to see the love and Savior. You need to see his compassion, what he was willing to risk, what he was willing to go through for you and pray that your heart would be changed. And that the more you look at him, the more you'll begin to look like him. And the more we as a church look at our God, the more we will look like him. We need to consider the state that we were in, which the Bible calls dead in our sins. We need to see our Savior bloodying himself for us that we might be saved. And allow yourself to be captivated by how kind he has been to us. Stand in awe of the compassion of the lover of your soul. Know him. Know who he is more and more. Jesus came and he shed his blood for us when we were in need. And countless times throughout history, Christians have followed in that example and have showed compassion at great harm to ourselves for others. This is what our people, this is what our forefathers in the faith have done for us. As Christians, compassion is who we are. Compassionate is who we are. This is who we've been made to do as we've been made new 
in Christ. In a few days, we want to partner together for Serve the City. Let's joyfully and compassionately serve those who are in need in our city. Because compassion is in our blood. It is in the legacy of our faith. Let us now go and do likewise. I'll pray for us and then I'll open up the communion table. Father, we needed you. Would you keep us from ever losing sight of that? That the reason that we know what true life really is, the reason that, that we have been rescued and saved is because we needed you. We were in need of your compassion and you didn't just stay back. You didn't stay away, but you came to us. You moved towards us. You took our pain, our sin, our guilt, our shame upon yourself, and you gave your life for us. Father, make us a church that are willing to give our lives for those who are in need, for those who are suffering. Father, remember that when you saw us in our suffering, you didn't just stay away, you didn't just remain neutral, but you moved toward us. Father, make us a church that, that, that so lives us out that this is what we are known for. Loving you and loving others. Help us to be near to the hurting, Lord. Give us wisdom in how to show your love. Help us to care. Help us to not just turn a blind eye or a deaf ear. Help us to care, Lord. Give us your strength. It's in Christ's name I pray.